Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Jeff Morin, President at Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design, as our guest. Let's talk about your background and, and um, who, who are the mentors that helped shape your path to the presidency? I, every mentor that I would identify was some form of a teacher. So um, Martha Kieser in high school, I grew up in northern Maine, a small town in northern Maine called Madawaska on the Canadian border. And um, when they hired Martha, I was either in the seventh or eighth grade. And I remember walking up to her and introducing myself and saying, you better be good at this because I want to do this. And I've got a clear memory of doing that. And, um, you know, she taught in a small school system, uh, was the only art teacher for everyone from middle school on up. And um, heading into my junior and senior year, she, she would take her weekends to work with about a dozen of us. Anyone who, who she thought or who self-identified as wanting to go off and major in art and design, she dedicated her weekends. She drove me from Northern Maine to Providence, Rhode Island to visit a campus for my first campus visit. So this was someone that was heavily invested in me heading off to college, specifically in art design. So she'd be the first person that, that I would identify. And then at the college level, a faculty member at Tyler School of Art, Temple University, Roger Anlicker, who I patterned uh, the lion's share of my teaching after uh, once I became a uh, full-time faculty member. So now being a president, are you still able to teach? Um, oddly enough, this semester I am teaching Monday morning, Monday, Wednesday mornings at 8.30. It's the first time in my position at MIAD, and I've been here for nine years, where I'm teaching a class on my own. I team taught a class earlier and I just didn't feel held accountable enough because people the, that I was team teaching with, they were, they were great. You know, they handled all the online course management and all of that sort of work. I felt more like a um, sort of, sort of a, a dignified guest scholar rather than the faculty member of record. So this semester, I really wanted to fly solo. In my previous work as an administrator, as a dean for a decade, as a provost of a, of a good-sized state school, um, I taught uh, every semester. And it was important for me to teach one course. Uh, best advice that I ever got from somebody, though, was the person I succeeded in my position as dean who said, uh, do this until it feels more like it's about you and instead mm. of the student. Once it feels more about you than the student, you really need to stop. Uh, and I thought I really took that advice to heart when I first came to Maya. There, there was real work to do, and people in the community need needed to see that the president was doing that work. And uh, taking five hours out of the week to teach a class and then prep for that class. Um, you know, we went from that early work at Myad and then into a three-year comprehensive campaign in the pandemic. So there were plenty of times where um, other work needed my full attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So when you're giving campus tours, what's the most common question you get from parents? We're in a unique situation here because um, we have a quarter million square feet under one roof. So the campus tour starts and ends in the same building. Very different from my previous experiences as a student at Temple University and University of Wisconsin-Madison, where the campuses go on for blocks, or even being at University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, or UW-Stevens Point. um, Those all had sprawling campuses. In our um, instance, it is a highly concentrated work environment. And one of the things that surprises visitors the most is that we dedicate the lion's share of our square footage to individual student workspaces. Hmm. So all of our um, uh, third and fourth year students have individual dedicated workspace so that they never have to tear down at the end of a class or pack up their materials at the end of the day. They can, they can leave a project uh, mid-moment and come back to it the next day or come back to it a week later and it's all still there. That was the greatest challenge during the pandemic because when our students left during spring break and we closed during spring break to, uh, to on-campus instruction, we had to pack up every one of those individual studios hmm. and get materials and projects back to students around the country. So it, 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 it's one of the shining uh, examples of what makes a Myad Uh, education unique, that dedication of space to students. And it was one of the great challenges during the pandemic. So you have roughly 52% in state, is that correct? Yeah, roughly 50-50, but yeah. So, So Myad has clearly attracted an audience you know, not just within the state and regionally, which is pretty pretty typical. You know, if you're within an hour and a half, two hour drive of a campus, you would hope you could protect your backyard, so to speak. But it's really going beyond that, you know, to other states that really I think can 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 show show an institution as being very transformative and really being able to expand their brand uh, by what they do and who they are. So how is Myad, and maybe during your nine year career, how has Myad really become that? Uh, that that brand that's well known beyond the inner walls of Wisconsin. Um, Myad is, um, I'd say, a modest institution on a lot of levels. It's a financially modest institution, and we serve a third of our students are Pell eligible students. So we serve a student body, um, many of whom have high financial need, and we dedicate almost all of our resources to their education. So as we have built awareness or the brand of the college, as we have made it um, evolve from a local to a regional to more of a national institution, um, we've had an enrollment increase of of roughly 50% over five years and set our largest class during the pandemic. Uh, We've lost a little bit of ground post pandemic because we serve so many high financial needs students and that is a student population and a family population that's been pretty heavily hit. What we've done to build that awareness is one-on-one storytelling. It's that work with high school art teachers. It's that work um, getting the message out at national portfolio reviews, which happen around the country. 
it is developing that um, that trust through storytelling and word of mouth that's gotten us pretty far down the road to where we are today. It's definitely a grassroots approach. Who are your top competitors? Uh, we belong to a um, national and international association called the Association of Independent Colleges of Art and Design. And you will find some of our um, members in many metropolitan um, schools around the country. So if it's the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, if it's Rhode Island School of Art and Design, um, those, those are schools that are in our organization. And um, they are definitely schools that, um, with whom we compete for students. Uh, one of the differences between Myad and some of the other schools, the two that I mentioned, um, we don't rely as heavily on international students. So we definitely have a focus on um, um, our students are students uh, sort of across the states. And so we put a lot of energy in, and, and that's where we put our investment. We do have international students. It's not as large a percentage. Well, as an, as an institution that focuses on architecture, visual and performing arts, illustration, uh, and I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving out other disciplines, but when you look at career path, career path and, and you know, just generally speaking, there are jobs today that may not exist in five or 10 years. You look ahead 10 years, they may, there may be jobs in 10 years that don't exist today. Is that true for me, Ed? Well, a couple of things for the college. Um, we work across the art and design disciplines. So um, we, don't, we don't do work in performing arts, but we do work in visual art. We do work in product design, illustration, animation, uh, communication design, um, illustration. And those, um, those vocations are definitely evolving and changing. Uh, an hour ago, I was in our uh, Lubar Centers for Innovation and Emerging Technology, and faculty and staff were um, working with uh, ChatGPT and AI to see, uh, to test it, and not to break it, but but to experience <sighs> it as a student might experience it, and um, to learn how that feels. Because we know that even in the creation of images, there is an artificial intelligence capability right now. Um, the interesting thing, if uh, and I and I saw this happen today, uh, the folks cooked up something to ask for for an illustration uh, using AI, and the figure that was uh, that popped up as the final solution, I think it's seven or eight fingers on one hand. So it was, it was close to something that was requested, but um, in another instance, the figure had three ears. So right now with artificial <laughs> intelligence, um, it can give an imitation of life, but not necessarily a depiction of life. It will get better. It will get to the point where it solves all of this. And one of the things that we pride ourselves on is the ideation or the idea development process. So as we, as we work with our students, as we train our students, as we prep our students to enter an occupation, 
um, we've spent most of that time on developing the idea, regardless of the execution of that idea. Um, years ago, we would have said problem solving. We developed problem solvers. Um, today, we talk about the ideation process. It's, it's really a similar path where the folks that we are educating ideally will enter the job market and as the job market evolves, they will evolve with the market and in the most successful cases, they will lead the market. Well, and I should correct myself, uh, Meyer. I think I said Meyer. So Meyer, Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design. So I want to clarify that for our audience. Um, so so how, how does a student in high school, maybe a student in middle school, or maybe we'll even look at your path, how do they know that they they have a passion for art and design and what you offer. I mean, when do they find that? When do they learn about it? I mean, what you just described to me as far as those different pathways, I, to me, that's that's news and that's exciting. But how does how do students find out about that? Uh, I'll divulge my path first and, and then touch on probably what some of our students um, go through. I knew in kindergarten what I wanted to do for a living. I knew I wanted to be a teacher and an artist. In my family, my brother and I were the first to graduate high school. My parents uh, worked very hard throughout their lives, were successful in a small business, uh, and did not have the same pathway that I've had. Uh, it was, I think, um, definitely an exotic process for my family, for someone to navigate going off to college, especially going off in art and design. And for me, it was very clear very early on, I felt it as a vocation or a calling. And for a lot of students, we had a very charming, lovely uh, uh, graduating student testimonial this year, someone who discovered my ad, who came here, um, who came from another country, uh, the family settled in the US, and the student eventually came here. And at one point during his, his uh, sort of video testimonial, he said, when I came to my ad, I found my weirdos. For, for a lot of students that come to a college like my ad, they may have been the one or two or three art stars, art focused people in, in a small high school. They may have been in a larger cohort at, at a large, in a larger school. For many of them, what they wanted to do was in addition to or in spite of what they were doing in high school. And it was always an underlying current. And they were maybe always the go-to people for, um, you know, homecoming, winter carnival, whatever. You know, who's going to make the mural? Who's going to do sort of the poster for the dance? Who's going to be on the yearbook uh, sort of design staff? Um, those are a lot of the folks a lot of our students doing that kind of work and they're doing it in addition to whatever else they're studying and they're used to doing that. So for a lot of the students that come here, three quarters of our students uh, study in the design fields, interior architecture, product design, um, uh, communication design, illustration, animation. So in those areas or fashion and apparel design, the new program that we launched this year, for those students, we can point to a more easily mapped out career pathway. For the fine arts students, 
they've already had a high school career doing more than. And for a lot of the folks working in the fine arts, they're signing up for a life of doing more than until they get to a certain point where um, their work takes off. Or they may not be interested in producing something that has a commercial uh, value assigned to it. What they're doing is, is spiritual, it's life affirming, it's value affirming for them, in addition to other things that they will do that allows them to free up the time, have a studio and be able to make work to get out into the, into the public sphere. Um, it's, it's both complicated and amazingly affirmative. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so how, how do you define student success? You know, at, at Myad, we are definitely, um, we're simple and direct at times. We have a list of values that they, we live by. And one of our stated values is kindness. And that's the one that always makes me smile because it's such a simple word and um, maybe not convoluted enough to be an institutional value in a way. It's simply kindness. What defines student success for me um, is happiness. You know, I, I, at this point in my career, I'm, um, what am I? I'm about 44 years from the day I walked on campus as a college student. I haven't second guessed growing up to be an artist and a teacher. 44 years after starting that journey, that journey. And I am definitely happy with the choice I made. Uh, it has been rough at times. It has been challenging at times. Some of my work deals with uh, social justice and, and uh, uh, things that we struggle with societally uh, from, from period to period. Uh, but it gives me great contentment to do that work. If I would hear from a student 10 years later, you remember in class when you talked about the fact that you really still love what you do? Me too. That would be student success. Someone that says, me too. I, I'm really happy I took this path. It's given me joy. It's given me fulfillment. It's given me a sense of purpose. And I think that that holds true across every discipline that we teach. Someone can lead to that point. There are studies that have been done. You can look at some of the uh, studies about uh, job satisfaction. And when you get into some of the art and design careers, you're going to see a high level of job satisfaction because the job aligns with our individual values. They align with our individual aspirations. I never, I never think about the fact that I have a job. Um, I'm living out my vocation. And, and that doesn't feel the same as saying, oh, yeah, I've got a job that I go to. That's student success to me. And how do you make sure uh, that, that you make uh, my ad more accessible to, to future generations, you know, especially with the path that, that you took as a first generation student? Um, I think it's important in my case to remember where I came from a small town in rural Maine, and the only way that I was going to attend um, 
college was on scholarship, the only way. And I was extremely fortunate. I had a four year full tuition scholarship hmm. to the school that I wanted to go to. And I still had to work 20 hours a week because the scholarship covered tuition and I was living in Philadelphia. So there's rent, there's food, there's art supplies. So even with an amazingly generous uh, financial aid package uh, that I am grateful for to this day, I know that I had to work pretty hard to, uh, to be able to make it through. I remember that for all of our students. I remember that on the day that we set tuition for this coming year. I remember that on the day that we look at uh, financial aid distribution for our students and I'm in those conversations. Um, I remember that as we're going through, we just wrapped up a three-year comprehensive campaign. The first in 20 years for the college, a $10 million campaign. And, um, you know, $10 million at some institutions is not a large campaign. At Myad, it's transformative. And we divided up the campaign into three categories, people, programs, and place. We worked on our campus, we added programs, and we figured out how to support our people. And uh, we focus on students. The, stu the students are in, in large part the people that we're trying to figure out how to support. How do we grow scholarship programs for those students? And then how do we create the wraparound services that they need uh, so that they can succeed? Because it is, it is a much more nuanced experience for students today than it was 44 years ago when I stepped on campus. There are many more student services today and they're needed. There's much more focus on mental health. So, so a scholarship and mental health services a scholarship and an equity and inclusion center in which they can find themselves represented. A, a scholarship and, and maybe, and this is something we're still working on, a caseworker to help them uh, navigate social services for those who find themselves all of a sudden unhoused or, um, you know, food challenged, because their students face all of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is not simply showing up to my um, uh, my sophomore level life drawing class tomorrow. So you had mentioned a capital campaign. What's what makes a successful fundraiser? Being a good storyteller and believing the story or or uh, embracing the story that you're telling. And I, I think that that is, on a basic level, all that makes a good fundraiser. The other thing is um, to remember a, a very basic concept. And this is something we talk about on campus, because sometimes we'll get questions from faculty and staff about, well, this person's a very big supporter of the college. Wouldn't they support this particular initiative? Probably yes, probably no. It depends on how it aligns with what they're interested in. As we go to a donor or, or a prospective supporter of the college, we have to know what that person is interested in supporting. If you come to me, I'm going to support scholarships. It's what, it's what my family decided to do uh, during this campaign. 
to set up an endowed scholarship and a planned gift that would um, increase the capacity of that scholarship um, at our passing. So that that's what's in near and dear to me. So as a donor, that's the conversation I'm going to have with that successful fundraiser. And there are certain things that I will understand are important needs to the institution, but they are not near and dear to my heart. What I will support is important to me. What I will support reflects my values. And the, fund, the, the person making the request needs to know that about the person they're speaking with. So as a fund, uh, fundraiser, I'm telling the story of the college and I'm listening to the person I'm working with to see if there is alignment. There may not be alignment. Someone may have great capacity and no alignment to the needs and the mission of the institution. We can have a lovely conversation, but it will simply be a lovely conversation. So when you look at uh, diversity and inclusion, so um, a number of presidents will talk about the fact that without belonging, diversity and inclusion doesn't mean too much. What's your position on that? It's a complex question. It's a complex question more so today than last year or the year before, given the public landscape. Um, student success retention, persistence, graduation, the numbers we look at are very much, um, they very much hinge on the ability of the student to see themselves in the classroom, in the faculty, for instance, to see themselves as practitioners after graduation. If I, if I represent a certain population that I don't think is in communication design. That was the area that I taught in for decades. If I'm working with a student that doesn't see themselves in that field, how can they envision joining that field? Do they really want to, in their own mind, be the first or the only? I'm going to get a job at a company and I'm going to be the first or the only queer employee or black employee or black queer employee, or black queer woman, or black queer non-binary person. You know, we have to show examples to students that make the argument that um, there are people that came before you that did this work, that succeeded in this field, that are in the classroom, that are presidents of a college, and, um, and we just need to reinforce that on a regular basis. And we've figured out, I think, some beautifully subversive ways to do that. So like most colleges around the country, uh, we support heritage months, whether it's, whether it's an LGBTQ heritage month or Black History Month or other heritage months. And um, we design programming around that. But we also do some extremely simple things through our Equity and Inclusion Center. Um, picking an example of, say, Black History Month, uh, we will make sure that we produce a series of postcards, maybe up to 100 postcards in a given year, that feature by face and name a, a Black practitioner. 
a black product designer, interior architect. Um, and on the flip side of the postcard, we will show their work. And then there will also be a scannable code to uh, take you online to see an expanded portfolio of that person's work. So that every year we produce another library of people from history and people who are contemporary, who are making and succeeding in the field that that student is interested in. So we make sure that we're putting those examples out there and we are working really hard to diversify our faculty so that in the classroom, um, a student can see themselves and, and from, a, from a BIPOC perspective, a, a black and brown faculty member perspective, over a three-year period, we've moved from 6% um, BIPOC faculty population to 12% the next year to 18% the year after mm -hmm. that. And uh, we have a student population that is roughly 35% BIPOC. So to get parity, uh, to increase the likelihood that our students will see themselves in the classroom, we've got more work to do. But we know how much we've moved the needle over three years, and it took some very direct, concentrated, concerted work. And that's about student retention. That's about student success. That's about graduation rates. All of, all of those numbers that we look to have many choices behind them. And there are a lot of equity and inclusion-based choices that we can make to help students succeed. And now when you look at those students that per persist and, and end up graduating, um, how do you make sure that you engage alumni? It is, for a small college, that's a really challenging thing. And particularly in an art and design college where if you look at the statistics about alumni giving across ACAD schools, this, this, this organization that I mentioned, you're going to find giving rates are lower than the national average. And you're going to find that a lot of schools like MIAD, um, early in my time here, we didn't have a full-time director of alumni relations. Um, we got to the point where we had someone part-time who was dedicating 10 hours a month to alumni uh, cultivation and engagement. It's hard to get a success with that, um, that casual relationship with our alumni population. Today, we have a full-time director of alumni relations and annual giving. And even, even in making that decision to add that position, we combine two different portfolios for that person, alumni relations and annual giving. So there's development work in there and, and then there's relationship building work in there because for a smaller college, having a, a dedicated person, let alone a dedicated team to something like this is a fiscal challenge. Um, but we've made that commitment. We are celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. So um, as a college, uh, so we're definitely putting some uh, we're shining a spotlight on work in our galleries. It's going to highlight our alums and um, utilizing this, this newer full-time uh, director to engage with our alums. But we're missing a lot of years of, of engagement in there that, that we have to make up for now. That's simply where the college is. 
we we work where we are in the moment. What are what are a couple of things that you're most proud of from the time you started to today? Um, I'm proud of the Myad community because it's the Myad community that has um, taken us to wherever I'm going to highlight. You know, our 50% growth in higher ed when, when uh, you know, growth is more of a dream than even an aspiration. How we got through COVID, I'm very proud of that. I'm, I'm proud of a successful comprehensive campaign that again shines a light on the great work that the Myad community is doing. Um, I'm proud that I could return to the classroom personally, selfishly, uh, you know, I, I'm proud of the institution on so many levels. I'm, I'm proud that we have an equity and inclusion center, that we have a director, that we have a support staff member for that space, that we have an emerging technology center, that we have an innovation center, um, that we have an offsite commercial gallery. Those are all things that we've started in the last three, four years or five years. Um, I'm proud and maybe the Myad community is a little exhausted because we've done a lot of work to get to where we are. I'm proud of the fact that over a, over a couple of years, we moved our first to second year retention rate from 69.5% to 85.5%. Wow. And, and I love what your eyebrows did at that point because they <laughs> went going, that's a big jump in about yeah. three years. Um, it means that when we identify the work to be done, we have the capacity to do the work. And I think at times, I think this year, you know, coming out of the pandemic and all of the challenges that it put on everyone, you know, our community is, is, definitely, is definitely feeling that they've been working hard, you know, and, um, and we will never be able to compensate them enough for that hard work. That's what I'm thankful for. That's a lot to be thankful for, I think. Yeah, oh, absolutely. A lot of great things to be thankful for as well. Um, so do you remember the moment that you were, uh, you, you you heard about becoming the president? I mean, was it a phone call? Was it a letter? Was it both? I'm sure it was a phone call and it was, Honestly, it was a little bit dizzying at that point because um, I was a finalist in three searches and, and waiting for the call from a couple of different um, possibilities and uh, definitely rooting for my ad as, as the possibility uh, because I had had a cup, I had had to make some hard choices a couple of times before. I knew I wanted to move into this work. I wanted to be able to actually make a decision. And that, that was something that, and for better or for worse, to be able to make that decision. And for a couple of positions, I had to, you know, in the final moment, say no, because it wasn't the right fit. Yeah. It wasn't the right fit for me. It wasn't the right fit for my husband. Uh, what our roles would be in the community or on campus. Um, I may not have been able to help an institution as much as they needed or in, in the way that I can help. 
so when it came to my ad and when it came to that call and when it came to the, the follow-up meeting to, to, to tie up all the loose ends, I knew it was going to be a, a good match and um, I was very optimistic. Mm -hmm. So where do you see Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design in 10 years? Um, the doors are still open and for, and it sounds like a, it sounds like a cheeky response, but, um, I know there are a lot of nervous college presidents out there right now and, and they're really hoping that in two to three years, they can say the doors are still open. So 10 years, the doors are still open. We've grown by another 35, 50%. And, um, more people know our story and more people want to hear our story. And for our alumni, when they come back on campus, they may not recognize parts of campus because of the improvements or the changes, but they'll recognize the students and they'll still see themselves in the students. Hmm. I think that's really important that we don't lose our identity as we move forward. Well, excellent. Jeff Warren, uh, from the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design. Hey, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the conversation. And, and again, thank you for giving a platform for the Myad story. Absolutely. Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.